0: Welcome to another episode of Commentary Mental. I am Dan Lush. Joined this episode by John Nucci, our golf law expert, who's now kind of a sports radio star. John, how does it feel?
1: It feels weird. I've been making the rounds. I was in Raleigh on Monday. I was in Orlando on Tuesday. Obviously, uh, on the phone, they weren't they weren't <laughs> flying me out and rolling out the red carpet, but it was fun to talk about about this topic because I've been following it pretty
0: closely. This is people's first episode. John was on uh, on with us last week when the lawsuit broke, but John has been kind of uh, our go-to golf law correspondent dating back really since the advent of the ConductDetrimental.com era. John has predicted this lawsuit for a while, and now we are here. So I don't want to bury the lead. John, it's always fun to to have you on. I saw a friend of ours, Jody Balsam, speaking to the Golf Channel. So I said, Jody is an alumni of our detrimental podcast. She has been on with us previously with the St. Louis Rams versus NFL, whatever, this $790 million breach of contract fraud case. Jody, once upon a time, worked for the NFL. She's currently a professor at Brooklyn Law School. She's their sports law professor. She heads the Brooklyn Sports law and Entertainment Society and the Brooklyn Sports Law Blog. We have a lot of Brooklyn law students that listen to the show. Shout out to one of our team members, Brendan Duggan. Maybe the tallest law student in America. Brendan is a mean six foot six. If anyone is taller than Brendan and is a law student or just a lawyer, you know, certainly let us know. I had a friend, John, I have to tell a hey, to keep a long story short, I had a friend uh, at my first big firm. I was at Wilson Elser. He was 6'9". He was legitimately 6'9". And when I would go to court, you know, I try to look for people, people see, you know, see any familiar faces in the audience. I would see uh, my friend's head a good, like, foot above everybody else. So I don't think he listens, but shout out to Eric Harris, former backup center at the uh, Siena University. He made a nice sweet 16 run once upon a time. So Eric, certainly a good dude. Okay. John, we're going to spend really this whole episode. We're going to talk to Jody uh, in a few minutes, but you and I are going to be talking some golf. You know, the news obviously that broke last week, the antitrust lawsuit was filed. And part of that relief sought emergency, you know, relief in, by way of an injunction to allow these players to play in the upcoming PGA playoffs. So, John, I gamble on golf. I am not a day to day Golf fan, as I know you are, per sources, I think you might be going to one of these upcoming PGA events. I know that Conlin and Stephanie, two of our other team members, were at the recent live event. So golf seems to be anywhere and everywhere. But I want you to fill everybody in. You have the, the floor is yours. What has happened in the last week? You can start. Well, I think you and I spoke on Thursday, so missed a couple things between Friday, Monday, and obviously today being Wednesday.
1: Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, the complaint that was filed last week, there were a couple components to it. There was the Antitrust claim, which is essentially claim that the tour is acting as a monopoly or uh, actual monopolization, as they put it. And the second was the temporary restraining order. So there were three golfers in that claim that was Taylor Gooch, Hudson Swafford, and Matt Jones. Those three guys were uh, attempting to play in this week's FedEx Cup playoffs, at least the first event of it, which is at FedEx St. Jude in Memphis. They had already qualified in the past based on their points that they had earned prior to their suspensions, so they felt that they had the legal grounding at least to challenge the PGA suspensions and allow them to play. Judge Freeman out of the Northern District of California denied their TRO, denied the temporary restraining order. She did suggest that maybe the filing of it was interesting. You know, the PGA tour said that they had kind of fabricated an emergency by waiting two months after their suspension to actually file the claim. But the judge did ultimately find that the temporary sharing order was timely. But the kicker here, which was very interesting, is that the players live contracts were actually based on the calculations of what they would be leaving behind if they left the tour. So part of that was that they already accounted for what they would lose uh, if they left.
0: Can I stop you there? I think that's the the biggest point in this. And we let you guys behind the scenes a little bit of kind of catchment. We already spoke to Joey. So we, we tried to save a lot of that, a lot of the nuggets from yesterday's hearing for that conversation. So certainly stay tuned and, and we kind of unpacked it. But I think of, of everything, obviously the big news, obviously, that, you know, live kind of lost on all fronts. There's no, there's no silver lining to what happened yesterday, but it's not just that they lost substantively. The fact that that came out is interesting, right? That that number, right? A hundred million dollars, right? And, you know, people reading Twitter, you see the, the news about Cam Smith looking, I think the number's 100 million that he's moving over there. Phil Mickelson, 200 million, Tiger Woods, 700 million. So from my standpoint, and I'm sure yours, John, I just said, you know what, live has got a blank checkbook. They can write whatever money they want. How much you need, Tiger? You need 700 million? Okay, how much you need, Phil? 200 million? And those numbers were just not based on anything. It was just, I'm going to write a check. It's going to be obnoxious check, and you're going to come and play for us. Now we're hearing behind the scenes a little bit, that number... Right, had some math behind it, in order to get a guy, in theory, like a Cam Smith to come or a Dustin Johnson, someone was doing the math behind the scenes and figuring out what those golfers would be making had they remained on the PGA Tour. So interesting calculus. So John, something that you alerted me to, your Twitter feed is basically like golf law Twitter. You are golf law Twitter. You're like in the eye of the storm. So you mentioned something to me that I had not seen. But the PGA Tour put out some facts and figures looking forward right, to try to do a little bit of defense right? That moving forward, if you look at the PGA's model, golfers that start their PGA Tour career today will be making much more than a golfer, let's say, that started 10 years ago. So
1: maybe, maybe fill out listeners in on, on that insight. That you yeah, the PGA Tour, interestingly, started circulating a document to players that uh, essentially what it does is it projects their future earnings if their careers were to start in 2022. And I think a lot of this uh, is probably geared towards the younger guys, just to show them that you know maybe the grass isn't always greener. It says that at least Jim Furyk, who is kind of, I mean, he's a great golfer, uh, but he's been been on the tour forever. They claim that he, if he started his career in 2022, would have earned $600 million. Rory is $373 million. And these are based on the changes in the structure to the PGA Tours money structure. So that's increased prize pools, the player impact program, and different things like that. So this document that's been circulating seems to be a little bit of a, a pushback and to show the younger players that, yes, maybe Liv is throwing around hundreds of millions of dollars, but you can make that here as well, and you can do it in a way that isn't controversial. This speaks to, and Jody has this great comment we started,
0: and we obviously, we, we you know, we try to extrapolate as much as we could, but yes, it's a massive, massive win for the PGA. And I spoke with, uh, I did a hit earlier for Sports Grid TV, and I explained like, you know, this is, our show is not a betting show, but I said, if you had to put a money line on the PGA's chance of winning this case, I made up a number, which, you know, I'm a betting guy is maybe as much as I am a sports law guy, but I said, i put the number around minus 250 or minus 300, because at the end of the day, this wasn't just a TRO for these golfers to play in this event. It did in some sense, ask about the likelihood of success and the merits moving forward. Yes, we only spoke yesterday about those three golfers. But if those three golfers are unable to show success on the merits, they, the other 11 golfers, my understanding is now that we've dropped down to 10 golfers, somebody went through from the case. But, you know, it's, it's going to be very hard for them. So, you know, I went on this show, I went on other shows. And I, and I did think that the TRO was going to be granted, at least in some way, shape, or form, we would see some crossover between PGA and, and lit golfers for the upcoming event. And I think, <laughs> I think the PGA lawyer had a funny comment yesterday. He's like, our fear is that these live golfers are going to show up wearing live attire and be on our broadcast with live gear on. And then the live lawyers like, they're not going to do that. That would be kind of a
1: spectacle. I mean, kind of Phil kind of did that, right? Didn't he show up with like an Augusta national sweatshirt on? That was at the first live event. He showed up with like a blacked out Augusta national. I don't know what kind of yeah. statement he was trying to make, but yeah. yeah. So they,
0: so Phil wielded some wardrobe to make some kind of statement, right? Yep. I mean, it's not crazy, but to that point, you know, the PGA has to mount a the legal defense, I think, is going to work itself out for them. The more these guys defect, the more big names that move over, the less the PGA tour looks like a monopoly. You might, maybe someone might want to call the NCAA monopoly because there is no competing collegiate organization, right? You could at one point call Apple monopolies because we all, everyone has their phones, right? You go on with AT&T and so on and so forth. The PGA, in a, in a traditional sense, is very tough to be viewed as a monopoly because Live is competing with them so well. So if we're trying to find ways that the PGA needs to kind of make these adjustments. It's in their business model. So I don't think anyone has an easy answer for that. So yes, we could talk about winning the battle, but losing the war. I think the PGA looks like a favorite to win this case. It's certainly early on, and we'll see what happens. We'll see what's bored out in discovery. You know, There might be testimony and uh, uh, paper discovery that's exchanged. But the war is the dangerous one. So John, uh, you're, you're the golf fan among us and
1: you're, I, I think a PGA fan, right? You're going to the PGA event in like two weeks. That's the one. I'll, yeah. I'll be at the BMW championship in Delaware in a couple of weeks.
0: Do you feel safe in the, in the security of the
1: PGA group? Or do you think there's a world where the PGA doesn't exist in 10 years? Is that possible? I don't foresee a world where the PGA doesn't exist in 10 years, but I do, as to your point, I mean, the more success Live has, the harder their argument becomes on the antitrust side. So the seemingly endless money that they have is kind of a double-edged sword. They're throwing you know, hundreds of millions of dollars around and they're flaunting private jets and they're blasting music and they're very high profile and getting a lot of media attention. And those things don't exactly scream being excluded from the marketplace. I mean, they are around, they're projected to have a 20% market share by next year for the PGA Tours complaint. So those things aren't, aren't exactly, you know, indicative of somebody that's that's been completely ostracized or banned from entering the marketplace. Been a whirlwind right In this last week. I, for one, just so people don't think I've pulled it out of thin air, we saw what happened over um, with the
0: Scottish event for the DP tour with Ian Poulter. Similar set of circumstances. He sought a court's intervention to play in that event. He was, Ian Poulter is a guy that played on the on the live event and wanted to play for the DP tour. That's the, Europe, the formerly known as the European tour. So he won that, right? It's obviously a separate court, separate country, right? United Kingdom versus you know, California, where this, this federal court case is being heard. But if that's the only precedent, the closest precedent, at least that's on the books, yeah, it's obviously not binding precedent. It might not even be persuasive precedent. It's a separate country, but it's an important precedent, and I'm, and I'm sure that, that came up. But you go from that position of strength, and, and John, you and I uh, spoke spoken a good amount over this last week. You know, when I was doing you know my different hits. One of the questions that somebody asked me, and I'll give a shout out to Ben Fletcher over at um, San Diego Extra 1360, he asked me what the live golfers were paying in terms of legal fees. And I'm like, listen, this, this is a case you have Gibson Dunn, Baker McQu- you know Baker McKenzie, Quinn Emanuel. You have all these law firms lining up to work on the case. I imagine live golfers are working in some type of contingency. I, don't, I think if you have the best law firms in the world lining up, you have the leverage to pick whoever you want. And if you have that leverage, I would think you're paying hourly on a plaintiff's case, maybe some type of hybrid contingency hourly. But that was a case that all of a sudden, at least at one point, looked very attractive to some of the best firms in the country. So, John, when you and I were talking offline, right, you you said the live lawyer almost embarrassed itself. I'll go one step further. They kind of did, right? I mean, the judge kind of addressed that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the live golfer's attorney uh, certainly got taken to task a little bit here. He Got embarrassed in court. I think at one point the judge even mentioned something along the lines of that the PGA might have to sue Live for the uh, antitrust violations. I also think it's, it's possible that perhaps the Ian Poulter, Brandon Grace, Justin Harding case in the UK may have given some of these players a false sense of confidence. Taylor Gooch made a statement that he, he thought he was signing up for one event and that he didn't think he'd actually be suspended. And it's possible that the Liv, Liv attorneys maybe told him that a suspension wouldn't hold up in court anyway. Liv has been very aggressive in basically making conclusory statements that the PGA, there's no chance they'll lose and that it's antitrust violations. And curious to know what's going through the players' heads. I think Daniel Rappaport uh, reported that earlier from Golf Digest that these guys, I don't think, had any indication that they would lose. I think that it may... Maybe somebody was in their ear all along that this was kind of an open shot case. And it seems to be far from that. And I think the tables have, have sort of been turned here on live because it was not a good day for them.
0: I'm certainly with you and I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll leave, leave, I think the rest to Jody. I think it's probably a good, good point to stop. I have some probably some comments on the back end about some interesting points that Jody raised really as in between an upstart league and an incumbent that, um, you know, I th- certainly think Jody is a is a great person to speak to. it. Okay, so let's let's uh, pause here for a minute. A brief reminder: our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review. John, pop quiz: Which uh, bar prep company did you use for your recent uh, taking of the uh,
1: the bar exam? I, as a matter of fact, use Themis. and I use. Boom!
0: Them. Boom! That's it. it. Was one question, John? That's it. That's it. Themis Bar Review. We don't just say it; they are the top bar prep company in the galaxy. More and more of our listeners are reaching out. Uh, a lot of you have just. Gotten uh, done with taking the bar, and uh, you know I got a handful of notes. Thank you for recommending Themis. Uh, I uh, I know. Listen, I'm contractually obligated to not mention any of their competitors, but I know some people were very unhappy with uh, this competing entity. I'm not even going to say what it rhymes with, but uh, we don't like them, and they're they're certainly not the top bar prep company in the galaxy. Maybe they're three or four. I don't know what the aliens use, but the aliens listen to this podcast they use Themis Barview. While we're on the topic of golf, I'm not a sponsor of the podcast, but I thought something important we should just talk about, and then then we'll get to Jody. So, John, on Monday, I played a, I played a charity event. I played the Marty Lyons Foundation charity event at Old Westbury Country Club. How'd you
1: shoot? How'd you shoot, Dan?
0: So it was a scramble. Thank you for asking. I sunk uh, my fair share of putts. I definitely contributed to the scorecard. I had a couple birdie making putts, but it maybe necessarily wasn't my shot on the approach. But played. I was definitely proud of the way I played. Marty Lyons event. I. It's one of these things, and I don't know, we don't talk about charity organizations on the the show, but kind of an eye-opening thing. Like, I I may consider myself an old-school football fan. I had never heard of Marty Lyons, the football player who played for the Jets for like a decade in the 70s and, and, uh, you know, into the 80s. He was first-round pick of the Jets back in the day. I know of Marty Lyons because I, you know, I grew up listening to ESPN Radio 1050, and they would always talk about the Marty Lyons Foundation, how all these huge celebrities would show up. So I got the invite. It's very hard to get an invite to this thing. And then uh, I showed up and it was like Jets legends and Rangers legends and New York sports personalities. Bob Buschusen, the Jets radio guy, was announcing it. Biddy Testaferty was there, Wayne Corbett, all the Jets uh, that we grew up with. So, yeah, I don't, you know, just a plug to those guys to the extent I had not heard of it. But it's, Marty Lines is basically like Make-A-Wish Foundation, but it's a smaller entity they do. So they give, they help to Make-A-Wish with like uh, Post Malone and John Cena so school so that was my uh, Monday night I spent uh, there just hearing stories of kids overcoming some really tragic aspects of the life and you know we all kind of bonded over golf so you know it's an episode about the business of golf you know golf is always going to be with us we can make the comments whether the PGA tour or live is going to survive but golf is very important you know it's an important thing in, in my life and I'm sure yours too John John is golf your favorite sport is that is that possible? Are you just a golf guy?
1: Yeah, I think I'm just a golf guy. I used to be a basketball guy before, you know, string of ugly knee injuries. And now I'm just a washed up golfer trying to break 80.
0: And I did notice that your Twitter your Twitter profile, jducci23, now includes that you are a golf love guy. You're in the eye of the storm. I'm telling you. So far, you get the call from North Carolina, Orlando. If you do have any radio hosts listening to this, I've listened to both of John interviews. They're excellent. And that's why you keep getting the call for us. Okay. I think this is a good time. Our guest this week on the podcast is Jody Balsam. As I mentioned, she's a sports law professor at Brooklyn Law School. You know, there's not many law schools in New York, not many sports law professors. And Jody and I crossed paths on a number of panels. And every time I hear her, uh, she's fantastic. And I heard her interview on the Golf Channel, and I'm like, let's see if we can get Jody. And uh, to our uh, pleasure, Jody decided to join us. So without further ado, let us kick it over to Jody Balsam. Welcome, Jody, to Conduct Detrimental. It's been a probably about a year since we last had you on, on the St. Louis Ram stuff, but pleasure to have you back.
2: Glad to be here. Good to see both you and John.
0: We figured we'll see where this goes, but I wanted to give you the floor to kind of start this conversation. You know, obviously, we've been kind of pegging this lawsuit to happen for a while. I think we all expected when this lawsuit would be filed, there would be some type of uh, injunctive relief requested. Now, I, I've told John this and those listeners of the show, I, I did think, There was a decent chance that the TR would be granted just as we look at previous sports precedent. But that didn't happen, not just that it didn't happen. The judge was very critical of the underlying case. So I don't know what your predictions were before this, but if you want to take a victory lap here, you're, you're more than welcome to.
2: Well, I predicted that worst case scenario, this judge might have allowed the three players who sought temporary relief to play this weekend only to give our time to examine the issues more closely. What I mispredicted is this judge's willingness to put the hard work in. I underestimated how deep a dive she was going to do to be able to rule immediately. Kudos to her. But remember, we're only one week into a really complex antitrust lawsuit. So it's hard to make any predictions based on the TRO hearing yesterday and the fact that the three of the Live 10 golfers did not succeed in getting that relief.
0: You know, it's a conversation John and I had uh, yesterday, this morning, we were talking about it. I I think if you're the Live attorneys and right, and we should mention three of us, John, you're soon to be admitted to the profession. Let's keep our fingers crossed with the bar. But what was an interesting observation that that we noted, right? Live golfers might be losing marketing deals, but with respect to the attorneys that they can hire, right? They're getting like the the gold standard between Gibson Dunn and, with Emmanuel and Baker McKenzie. So,
2: Absolutely.
0: you know, and, and I think if you're one of their lawyers, yes, it, certainly losing the TRO doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose the case. I certainly think it's a, a decent blow. Without giving any bold predictions, do you think that yesterday's result does impact in some way, shape, or form the outcome of yeah, this case? Yeah,
2: I do. And, and actually, um, I was thinking about that. I actually made a list of what this victory does for the PGA Tour in the context, not just of this litigation, but the broader world of professional golf. So it gives Live Golf its players, that is, one less weapon in its arsenal to leverage for settlement, right? There No temporary relief was granted. There's still the prospect of a full-blown evidentiary hearing on a formal preliminary injunction motion. Uh, that hasn't been made yet. We don't know if that's going to happen. But The fact that this judge was reluctant to find the reparable injury for temporary relief might inform her decision on that element of the preliminary injunction standard. It vindicates the commissioner's disciplinary authority, right? So she was highly critical, the judge, of the procedures that the PGA had in place for penalizing and suspending players, allowing them to appeal, and whether a stay is available on appeal. However, she deferred to the commissioner's judgment on how those provisions of their disciplinary process interact and his authority to suspend them without a state pending appeal uh, with respect to ongoing conduct that violates PGA rules. So there was a significant degree of deference to the PGA TOR's right to self-govern and the commissioner's authority to discipline. She also allow the PGA Tour to avoid the discomfort and the inconvenience, the embarrassment of having those players actually show up and compete during the FedEx Cup tournaments over the next three weeks. But here's the bad news for the PGA Tour. This decision, and even a complete victory at the end of a full blown antitrust trial does not make live golf go away. Live golf and the kind of challenges it's bringing to the PGA Tour's economic model behoove them to develop not just a legal strategy, but a business strategy to accommodate the changing face of golf.
1: That's a great point in terms of Live Golf not going away. It was also reported that Taylor Gooch maybe thought that he had signed up just for one tournament, so the first Live tournament, and that he actually didn't think he would be suspended by the PGA Tour, or if he did, uh, that the Live attorneys maybe told him that Uh, any suspension wouldn't hold up in court anyways. Do you think the language of the opinion or maybe the veracity of it might give some other players pause in the future if they see that they may not be able to play in these tournaments in the future, despite what live attorneys might might think?
2: Yeah, the choice between live golf and PGA Tour much more stark. The decision implicitly endorses the idea that these are two competing tours and that the players have to choose one in the same way that if, for example, the XFL decided to launch a football league that overlapped with the NFL season, its players would have to choose one of those two leagues to play in. The PGA Tour players have to make that choice. And it's not going to be any easier by a court intervening and telling the PGA Tour that they can't exclude players who've chosen live golf. That choice has now become much more stark for the players who decide to go with the money and and with the Saudis.
1: The court seemed to agree with the PGA Tour, uh, at least in some respect, that the the filing of the TRO was interesting and that they waited. There were uh, seven events between the date they were filed or I'm sorry, the day they were suspended and the actual time that the complaint was filed. I know the live attorney actually said something along the lines, I wouldn't be here arguing irreparable harm if this was the John Deere classic. Uh, Do you think that goes to players trying to pick and choose their events? I think that's a lot of what the PGA Tour players are upset about as well.
2: Yeah, so you're making um, two important points. So one is that the irreparable harm argument and the emergency nature of the live golf players motion was oriented around depicting the FedEx Cup tournament as the marquee event of the PGA Tour. The lawyers on behalf of the Live Golf players described it as the Super Bowl and the World Series. And so I think that that's their position going forward. It's going to be very difficult for the Live 10 or other Live Golf players to argue that irreparable harm arises from exclusion of less, lesser marquee tournaments. They certainly have carved out a tournament of the importance of the relevance of the FedEx Cup. Uh, and also I imagine the four majors, which by the way, the PGA Tour does not control. But I think they made a very significant concession in saying that emergency relief or, or rather irreparable harm wouldn't arise from exclusion from lesser tournaments. The other point that you made is the one about why the PGA, rather the the live golfers, waited so long to bring a request for emergency relief. When the judge finally read her decision from the bench, she actually accepted their argument that they were, in my words, not hers, exhausting their administrative remedies. They were pursuing relief through established PGA TOURS disciplinary process. And only when that process seemed to come to a standstill and risk them missing this marquee event, the FedEx tournament, did they finally realize that they could no longer entrust their fate to the PGA TOURS disciplinary process and had to seek relief in court. And it seemed to me in the way that she articulated her analysis in the decision she read from the bench, that she accepted that the delay was reasonable.
0: To John's point, I think the, the timing is a little bit convenient. If you really do view this as the World Series or the Super Bowl of your sport, and that's when you happen to file you know, this, this TRO, it's a little tricky. And I think a point that we should mention, right? The playoffs are coming up, but it's not a one weekend event, it's a three weekend event. So yes, maybe the TRO would have been granted for this particular weekend series, but no guarantee with respect that it would hold up for the next two.
2: I would just mention that the TRO differs from a preliminary injunction in that under the federal rules, you may only grant temporary relief for up to 14 days. That would not have entitled them to participate in all three FedEx Cup tournaments. And one of the reasons I thought that the worst case scenario for the PGA Tour would be a one week reprieve for these players is that it might have also mooted the rest of the temporary relief, emergency relief they sought, because if they did not finish high enough, if they didn't perform well enough in this upcoming weekend's tournament, they might not have progressed to the later tournaments. So I, you know, in terms of my ability to predict outcomes. I thought that the worst case scenario was a one week of reprieve for these players, but they would never have received the full-blown relief they were seeking. And in fact, they received no relief at all.
0: And that's why I think this question of irreparable harm especially when you're dealing with golfers, right? We're not dealing with uh, like an NFL player who gets a certain salary for a certain amount of years, right? But we kind of have some predictability, about at least what he'll earn with respect to his playing career, maybe separate from off the court or, you know, off the field. Now these, the live golfers were arguing kind of twofold. Hey, you're harming our uh, on course earnings, number one, but number two, because we have no longer an affiliation with the PGA tour, you're also hurting our, our marketing, Dollars, right? So, to some extent, you could argue that that calculation, because it's a golfer who makes money based on where he finishes, and sponsorships are always going to be kind of ephemeral to some extent, that that calculus has to, at some some point, be speculative, right? You can have as many experts. And I know John has some questions about the experts uh, that were involved here. But I, I, I think that's an uphill battle. And then the one thing that we learned yesterday, which I think was then re- retracted a little bit later by the Live Tour, the Live Lawyer, I think, had argued or had stated at some point, that the live winnings, that guaranteed money, is actually subtracted by earnings that you have on, on the live tour. So, live has since come out and, and you know, I guess, fought that back. But I guess my question to you or comment, Jody, I think from an outside standpoint, like we've, we've talked about it on the show, John and I, when these golfers are getting like $100 million to, to go over to live tour, right? And Tiger Woods is being offered $700 million, and Phil Mickelson is, you know, being reportedly offered $200 million. And that amount of money is more than these PGA tour golfers have ever made in their golfing careers. It's very hard to argue that you're irreparably harmed from a financial standpoint when you're making more money in this deal. Because that, I mean, I think that's their hardest argument to get by.
2: Not only that, it was an incredibly successful argument in yesterday's hearing. The court understood that and agreed with it. She basically said, "You've already been paid by Live Golf for the harms that you're alleging in this lawsuit." That's a calculation that the Live 10 made when they made the business decision to abandon the PGA tour, right? They went to Live Golf and said, if I abandon the PGA tour, here's what I'm losing. you got to pay me enough to compensate me for that, including the intangible harms." And Live Golf came through with that money. And so the court looked at that transaction and decided you've already been compensated for harms, both monetary and otherwise. You don't, you're not entitled to any further relief, given the deal you struck with Liv Golf. By the way, we keep talking about Live Golf's arguments, and I want to make clear this is not a litigation in that's, which Liv Golf is a plaintiff. That's fair. There are eleven now, ten PGA Tour former PGA Tour members who have brought this lawsuit. Carlos Ortiz dropped out of the lawsuit yesterday, so there's now the Live Ten, not the Live Eleven. And I mean, I would say that the LiveGolf entity is a stalking horse here. It, rather, the players are a stalking horse for the Live Golf entity, that LiveGolf would rather not find itself in the public eye and scrutinized in court for the in, way that it's structured its business. And so the players are out there ahead of them stalking the issues that LiveGolf would love to have raised. But I think ultimately there's gonna be an antitrust standing issue for a good portion of the complaint that was filed because they're not claims that the Live 10 players are entitled to bring or receive relief for.
0: You know, it's it's funny and I'm happy you you clarified that. Obviously, you know, this is a case with just the Live golfers Student PGA Tour, but then that kind of goes to the PGA's comments in the wake of this lawsuit, right? That your former colleagues over at the PGA, right? are now suing you, the players, right? They're in theory, according to the PGA, they're couching this as a lawsuit against, right? Phil versus Rory, Phil versus Tiger, and so on and so forth. Because PGA is not made up of a collection of owners like you would in a traditional league. So in theory, the PGA is a collection of players. So, you know, I think that's at least it's more fun to say a live versus PGA battle, but you're hundred percent right. That's not the actual
2: couching. There's actually another important distinction to be made, which I'm surprised how many people who actually follow golf don't realize, and that is the distinction between the PGA and the PGA Tour. The PGA, Professional Golfers Association, is exactly what its name implies. It's an association of professional golfers to promote the sport. Almost 50 years ago, the PGA Tour split from the PGA and formed a separate entity, which was founded by the players there are no equity owners in the PGA Tour other than the players themselves. It is essentially a consortium of players who collectively agree on the rules that will govern the sport and hire people to run the sport, like Jay Monahan. He is an employee, effectively, of the players. And unlike in the NFL, where the commissioner is the employee of a bunch of owners who have equity ownership of teams, the PGA Tour is an entirely different business model and cannot be exactly analogized to other professional sports in the United States, or even to live golf, which again, is structured more akin to a typical US sports league in that there is an equity owner who employs the players, right? That's why the PGA Tour is Uh, a different animal entirely. It's essentially a consortium of players who have agreed to pool their talents, their celebrity, their media rights, and sell them collectively. And anytime one of those players wants to leave because they are no longer satisfied with that deal, they are free to do so. Unlike even, say, an NBA player who at a minimum would be bound to his team for the duration of his contract and say he decides I'm not doing well enough in the NBA, I wanna go play in Italy or Australia. They can only do so unilaterally without permission from their team at the conclusion of their contract. The PGA Tour is actually far more flexible and generous with its players. A player can leave the consortium known as the PGA Tour at any time and play for another tour, but they have to choose. They can't play for both at the same time. That's the PGA Tour's point here. I don't think people understand that business structure.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And to that point, I was a little surprised. I'm not sure if you were to, at least I didn't see in the complaint that there was anything regarding the PGA Tour and relationships with the four major governing bodies, being the PGA of America, Augusta National, R&A in Scotland. Do you think that, I mean, obviously there may not be an issue yet because those players were allowed to play in the majors this year. If those entities take any steps in the next several months or years to exclude live players from competition in majors next year, whether it be changing their rules for qualifying points or even stripping those that have already qualified via exemption. Do you think that exposes those governing bodies and maybe the PGA Tour to, to yet another round of litigation?
2: Well, this round of litigation has already done is accused the PGA Tour of pressure tactics and collusion with other entities in the golf ecosystem, right? They most blatantly, they accused the PGA Tour of colluding with the European Tour, now known as the DP Tour, but they've also alleged in the complaint that the PGA Tour has exerted pressure on the majors to try to convince them to exclude live golf players. And I think your prediction is absolutely right, Jonathan, that if the majors do decide to exclude live golf players in the future, there will be allegations that it was at the behest of or in collusion with the PGA Tour. One of the most important pieces of advice the PGA Tour Council can give them at this moment is avoid even a whisper or a hint that they are in any way colluding or discussing even with the majors the eligibility of live golf players.
1: Follow-up question to that on the, on the bigger antitrust claim. Do you think that there is any risk or... Uh, possibility that the lip golfers maybe backtrack a little bit here, given how aggressively the judge seemed to be against their argument. Uh, I know she even poked fun at the fact that PGA might have to, tr- to live for antitrust
2: in the future. This lawsuit is strategic. It's just one weapon in the arsenal of trying to exert leverage against the PGA tour and reconfigure the way that golf is presented in the United States indeed around the world. And this loss does not mean that effort is going to collapse. It just means that LiveGolf has to rely on other means to achieve what it's seeking here, that it looks like at this point in time that the lawsuit is not going to be as part a cudgel against PGA Tour as they had hoped. But that does not slow LiveGolf down. They've invested a lot of money. They will continue to do so. And another set of facts that were very convincing to the judge is that their success so far is limited as it's been, but their success so far is the counterfactual to an allegation of monopolization. Whether or not the PGA Tour is actually a monopoly, they could be a perfectly legal monopoly. Those exist unless they have done something to exclude competition, erect barriers to entry, impede the success of a new entrant. And the facts as we know them right now, at least from the judge's perspective on the record that she received, is that the PGA Tour has been unable to exercise monopoly power if they ever possessed it. That they have not been able to exclude a new entrant. That new entrant has been enormously successful. There are rankings of the most popular players on the PGA Tour that receive extra bonus money at the end of the season. Of the top 10 who were in line for that money this year, five of them have abdicated to Live Golf. Live Golf's tournaments went off successfully. They're now seeking media deals. Uh, The argument here from the perspective of the PGA Tour, an argument that I'm sure they're not happy that they're winning Is that lift golf is a success. And that defeats, at least in part, a claim of monopolization.
0: I'm only laughing because you're, you're right. I think they would have, you know, maybe if you had them under all they They'd be reluctant to admit that, but you know, on the day where this hearing occurs, it's really the first kind of decision point in this big antitrust case. I don't think it's a coincidence, right, that Cam Smith signs, right, for a reported one hundred
2: million dollars. So I'm not up on this morning's news. I only saw his press conference yesterday, where he refused to answer the question. So, I, so fill me in. I've seen blue check marks
0: carry that story, I think some of his fellow Australian golfers have. Said that I don't know if that number has been confirmed uh, straight from the horse's mouth. I think the quote I heard from one of his uh, colleagues was, "They are gone." So, uh, and then the, separately, that the uh, that live had filled up all 48 spots for for next year. I think you can read between the lines. So, you know, we say reportedly, but you know, when when right. one of his colleagues has said, it seems pretty clear. But I think you know, to your point, Jody, we talked about um, you know, monopoly power, and with each passing day, and John, to the point you raised earlier, the longer these live golfers waited, the tougher that argument was, right? Because more and more golfers continued to move over. You have the British open winner. who, Again, uh, you're reading the reports. looks like that's soon to be official official, but it's certainly tough to say that, Hey, this one entity controls everything in our industry and no one else can compete when live tour. Probably. I I don't, I mean, I'm just memory. I'm trying to think of it. I can't imagine an upstart league in sports history jumping on the scene this quickly. Certainly, USFL once upon a time, you know, certainly made a dent in the NFL and maybe the ABA to some extent, but I don't remember an upstart league having as much money or more money than the incumbent league, which is certainly, I don't know, a point that's going to be in the PGA's favor from a legal perspective, even though from a business perspective, I'm sure they don't love that.
2: Yeah. And just to keep reminding folks, this is the Saudi public investment fund that's backing with golf, right? This is a government with unlimited funds to compete vigorously until the PGA Tour is out of money and out of luck, right? And usually there is some capacity restraints, some resource restraints on new entrants. That is why the uh, existing and and dominant league is able to survive their emergence and, and, in fact, leads to their demise. But that's not the case here. We have the deepest pocket known to sports who is not going away whatever happens in this lawsuit. I want to point out that LiveGolf is using many of the same strategies to obtain commitments from its players that it's ex- accusing the PGA Tour as violations of the antitrust laws. Its players are making a commitment that they will show up to all 14 of Live Golf's events and that they can only play on off weekends, right? So similar to the PGA Tour, you have to make a commitment so that the tour has a predictable high level field at every tournament that justifies the sponsor and media dollars. Unlike Live Golf, if they don't show up and play, if they don't have that high level professional golf product, the money goes away. With Live Golf. the money's there to muscle through whatever challenges they have in terms of getting audience.
0: Right, right. And I think, you know, just to the point of uh, pricing yourself, maybe, I don't know, the opposite of pre- predatorily, right? You're giving money that doesn't necessarily have to result in revenue. It results in harming your competitors. So it seems like the Saudi, Saudi money is, is large enough to float that, even though the, imagine Live is operating well in the red, just on, a, on an oh, annualized level.
2: Absolutely. And the, yeah, um, they're, that might be a form of predatory pricing, as they call yeah. it, antitrust laws.
0: I was taught by the great uh, Mark Edelman in all things uh, sports antitrust law, the them once upon a time. I have this one to go, you know, I, it's a point you you raised earlier. And I guess to the point that you just made, um, among the ju- you know, judge's credentials, I don't know if she's a stand-up comic in there, but she did mention, right, that these live contracts in some respects are more restrictive than the PGA contracts. So, you know, John and I were joking in the previous episode, like, a lot of these live golfers were saying, hey, I'm moving over for more flexibility and when I can play. And that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. And as we go further and discover with this lawsuit, I mean, we might have a level of transparency, which completely casts that into doubt. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this as our final question. You know, you said something very interesting, that win or lose the PGA's business model might be in trouble. We've already started to see some changes in that front with higher purses. Right. And I think Jay Monahan is trying to react to that. But it's tough to see, right, how the PGA leaves this unscathed, right? Uh, and again, Cam Smith, looking like he's on his way out. And DJ, Phil, maybe those aren't the top golfers in the sport. But as you mentioned, five of 10 Cam golfers on this top list. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Cam so, Smith is a top golfer, right?
0: Yeah. So it's that's certainly not a good trend from a business perspective. But I'll give you the floor to kind of speak to the future of, of the PGA in light of you know these lawsuits and, and what's coming out.
2: Folks may not remember this far back, but in the 1980s, A major antitrust lawsuit was lodged against the then analog to the PGA Tour, the Men's International Professional Tennis Council, which ran the tour of professional tennis players in the men's game. An antitrust suit was launched against that entity by a number of other interests in the tennis ecosystem that sought to free up tennis players to have more flexibility to play exhibition matches to make guaranteed money uh, and to not be wholly dependent on the uh, existing tour system, which paid them only based on wins and rankings. The lawsuit was settled in a way that led to the demise of the MIPTC. It no longer exists. You haven't heard of it because of that antitrust lawsuit. And what emerged at the other end was the current men's professional tour, the ATP, the Association of Tennis professionals, a tour that gave the players much more power, authority, and flexibility. They reshaped the face of professional tennis based on a lawsuit that made many of the same allegations as the one in this lawsuit. So as I said, whether they win or lose, the PGA Tour may not look the same in years to come. It may be redesigned to give the players some way to guarantee income that can at least pay their expenses that won't make them wholly dependent on performance at tournaments. That's my prediction, but this will change the face of the PGA Tour to guarantee some opportunities to make money or some guaranteed money that might even be paid out by the tour itself
0: think that's a good place to end it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sitting here, I have to turn in my syllabus to New York law school about <laughs> a week. So it's uh, constantly in flux. Jody, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and uh, your students at Brooklyn Law School are very, very lucky to have you.
2: Good to see you both.
0: Thank you very much. Bye bye. So that was Jody Balsam. She is on Twitter at Jody Balsam, J-O-D-I-B-A-L-S-A-M. Again, Brooklyn sports law professor. former NFL counsel. She is no shortage of credentials. And she was certainly uh, making the rounds last night on Twitter with some of her takes. So definitely check her out. I was surprised, John, that Jody uh, came back. Uh, Last time we had her on, I kind of alluded to it, but we had her on for one of our roundtables. We'll call it one of our town halls for the St. Louis v. NFL saga. So just by nature of the fact that she worked for the NFL, there were some people in the chat, like thinking that she was going to take the NFL's position. So they said some not so pleasant things in the chat. And I'm I'm happy Jody knew that that wasn't us. That was just some of our crazy fans. And if you're listening to this and you're one of those people that wrote those messages, shame on you. Don't do that. Don't do that again. Okay, John, have any takes on uh, anything that we left out on the PGA
1: live front? And I should say the PGA, well, live players versus the PGA. I want to be, be careful. Yes, live players versus the PGA. I guess takeaways at least from the hearing is just, uh, we'll see how this plays out because I think the judge was very skeptical of even their more core claims, their antitrust claims on that front. So uh, obviously the temporary restraining order has been resolved, but I think Lib has certainly an uphill battle as far as the antitrust claims go as well.
0: So I'll give you my one that we didn't get to, to kind of, we kind of beat around it, but like at the end of the day, we've, we could talk about upstart leaks. You know, I have a very weird obsession with defunct and Defunct teams and upstart leagues. I've read way too much in them, but as far as I know in sports law history, there has never been a league that has so quickly established itself as like not, I don't want to say equal, but they're getting there very quickly. You're pulling guys like Cam Smith like very, very quickly. Even back in the day, the USFL they were they were getting in rookies, right? They were getting in, you know, they were kind of competing for players out of college. They weren't necessarily stealing the top players from the NFL. Maybe it happened handful of times but it's rare so what we have now is a league that I don't think is by any means positioning itself for a merger with the PGA which maybe was the thought once upon a time I know some people had predicted that we have a league an upstart league that's like going in for the kill it's like you know when you have a boxer that's like a you know like I was watching this fight UFC fight over the weekend Muhammad Usman brother of brother of the champ he was like a plus 250 underdog and I started watching the card and I'm like this guy is going for the kill. He thinks he can win this and ends up knocking, uh, getting the knockout. So that's kind of what we have here. We have Liv, which in theory was the underdog. But once started, people, you know, I, I watched this guy, Mohamed Usman. He's like, he was much bigger than the guy he was going up against. And I'm like, I don't know what books had him as the dog, but this guy looks like he can win. So Live, to your point, John, I think up until this week, really thought they were the favorite, right? In all aspects, they were the favorite in this case, favorite for the TRO. And now they have to kind of lick their wounds a little bit. I still think they're, they're, they're looking pretty good in the overall battle. PGA's got to reshuffle their card, so to speak. But for with respect to this particular antitrust case, I'm going to hold to my prediction at least at this point. Two fifty. We'll say we'll, we'll call it a minus two seventy five.
1: PGA favorite. You, would, would you take that bet, John? You still you betting the PGA at those odds? I think I would still take the the PGA at those odds. Yeah. You Lay the money. Lay the juice. I would. I would lay that money down. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, the. Live was definitely very confident in their position, as were plenty of Twitter lawyers that were in my replies yelling at me uh, for the last month as well.
0: Listen, if you if you can take a punch from the uh, the Twitter replies, you're better for it. You can. Uh, what do they say? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, John. You're you're getting it. Yeah. yeah, those reply um, guys are
1: making me stronger.
0: Yeah, just uh, just one. while we uh was short on time, so I want to I want to wrap us up with this. I'm going to give you the floor, John. You you actually, in addition to just being a PGA guy, you were a PGA betting guy. You know, I'm watching golf. I'm going to probably. Yeah, I'll watch it when I can over the next couple of days. Do you have a pick, a betting pick for some of our listeners? You know, I, yeah, as you can tell, I'm a little bit in the betting space. Who do we like? Who do we like to win the State U Championship? Can I get a winner? Maybe uh, uh, some other picks, whatever whatever you give me.
1: Sure. So there's a couple. This course is, it's it's played in Memphis, but it's kind of a, uh, has a lot of characteristics of a Florida course. And when we think of Florida courses, it's usually all eyes go to Billy Horschel. He's a Florida Gator, plays very well in Florida. He's got some pretty long odds to win at this point. I think he's uh, somewhere around 40 to 1 or 50 to 1. I wouldn't hate Billy Horschel as a top 20 play, maybe a top 10 play. Uh, and the other one is Sung J. M. Uh He is trending uh, up at the moment, which is usually recent form is a good indicator of winners at these type of events. Is coming out back to back second place finishes. So if you want an outright winner at decent odds, I would give you Song JM. I think he's around thirty five to one, and Billy Horsham.
0: I like both of those. I would pick them. If any of our listeners take them, do not get mad at John. Assumption of the risk. I'll give one betting pick as we close the book on this. I did mention a couple of weeks ago Novak Djokovic was the favorite to win the U.S. Open. We've got to give you some legal takes, some legal betting takes as well. He remains the favorite at plus 150. There's been no update in the U.S. law that does not allow unvaccinated persons uh, into the country. And I don't see the U.S. Open making any exceptions for it. So, you know, all eyes are going to be on Serena Williams, her, her last hurrah. She's announced her retirement after the U.S. Open. All eyes, at least in my bold prediction here, will not be on Novak Djokovic because I don't think he's playing in the event. So if you want to place a bet here, Danny Medvedev, plus 225, Alcaraz, plus 330, Nadal, plus 500. My new, I kind of like Nick Kyrgios. He's pretty good, plus 1400. Those odds will move as we get closer and the US does not update their law. All those guys will drop. So pretend I said Nadal was plus 250. Plus 500 sounds a lot better. You can grab it here. Again, assumption of the risk. I'm just telling you those odds seem off what we saw happen in the Australian Open when he also wasn't allowed into the country. And shocker, was not allowed to play in the event. I think that'll do it for our podcast today. Special All Things Golf episode. John, good luck on the bar, my friend. When do you find out?
1: Thank you. They only make us wait a good short three months. So it'll be end of October. I think end of October is when, when we'll get the you know, notification. So
0: My spider sense is that we will have you on well, well, well before that. John, great job today. My thanks to Jody Balsam, for Dan Wallach, myself, the Conduct Detrimental family. We will see you next time on another episode of Contact Detrimental.